Tonight, Democrats celebrate a very big win in a very real swing district, boosting hopes that they might hold on to the Senate and eek, maybe even the House. Pat Ryan, the Democrat, headed to Congress after his extraordinary victory last night. He will join us live in studio. President Biden says the government is canceling up to $20,000 in student debt for millions of Americans. Republicans call it socialism, while some on the left say it is not enough. Senator Elizabeth Warren has been advocating for student debt relief for years. She joins us live tonight. And Donald Trump is calling for the affidavit in the Mar-a-Lago search to be made public. And the DOJ has until tomorrow to respond. Expert analysis on why this might backfire for the former president just ahead. But first, Democrats ended primary night last night evening, last evening, feeling good about their wins and surprisingly good about their momentum heading into November. In New York, voters elected a Democrat in a special House race in a notorious swing district just two months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The timing on that would not appear to be coincidental. That race offers signs that the Democratic electorate is as motivated as ever by the fight for abortion rights. To be fair, Democrats can also credit some of their newfound positivity to major recent victories from the Biden administration. From the first gun safety bill in decades to the CHIPS Act, to legislation on burn pits, to the Inflation Reduction Act, Biden's signature health care and climate bill, the winds have been piling up this summer over at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And today brought another policy victory for his party, with President Biden finally announcing his plan for student debt cancellation. The president announced his decision to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt for Pell Grant recipients and another $10,000 for any borrower making $125,000 or less. That is in addition to extending the pause on student loan payments through the rest of this year. Today's action is expected to benefit 43 million Americans. And Biden now says he has delivered on his campaign promise, the one he made Back in 2020, after rival candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren became the first 2020 candidate to propose full-on student debt cancellation. It was one of more than 80 plans she pitched to voters during her campaign as the I have a plan for that candidate. Her plan to alleviate student debt gained a whole lot of traction as the race went on, in no small part because of her attention to detail and her call to action. African-Americans are more likely to borrow money to go to college, borrow more money while they're in college, and have a harder time paying that debt off after they get out. Today in America, a new study came out 20 years out. Whites who borrowed money, 94% of them have paid off their student loan debt. 5% of African-Americans have paid it off. I believe that means everyone on this stage should be embracing student loan debt forgiveness. It will help close the black-white wealth gap. Let's do something tangible and real to make change in this country. Everyone on this stage should help close that gap. Well, in the years since, Senator Elizabeth Warren has worked to ensure that President Biden would do just that. We know that she was pushing the White House on the issue as recently as Friday, when she, along with Senators Chuck Schumer and Raphael Warnock, met with White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. And then came today's monumentous, much-anticipated announcement. The White House says Biden's plan will fully cancel the debt of 45 percent of borrowers and 90 percent of the relief will go to those earning less than seventy five thousand dollars. Now, the plan is already facing predictable criticism on the right. 
Republicans say it goes too far. And then it leaves a check with those who did not go to college or have already managed to pay off their debt and that it could also add to inflation. But Biden is also facing criticism on the left for not going far enough. He did not, after all, cancel a portion of student loan debt for all borrowers, the $50,000 of debt that Senator Warren had initially proposed. Case in point, the president of the NAACP has called the $10,000 in relief for some borrowers, quote, meager, to say the least. So now, with certain Democrats voicing unhappiness and a new line of GOP attacks emerging, how will this latest policy announcement reshape the midterms? And can Democrats successfully sell it to undecided voters? I wonder who might have a plan for this. Joining us now is Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, and the woman with a plan for nearly everything, including one for student loan debt. She was, just to say it again, the first 2020 Democratic presidential candidate to propose flat-out broad-scale student debt cancellation when she announced that plan in April of 2019. Senator Warren, thank you for being here tonight. And I should say congratulations on what is a landmark achievement. Uh, I know people have issues with it, but let's just first issue the congratulations. Thank you. And let's just celebrate, because understand... 20 million Americans got the news today that they will never have to pay another another nickel on student loan debts. And another 23 million Americans learned today that they owe less money than they did before the pandemic started. This is historic. And, And actually, let's do one more group. And that is all the parents who have younger kids, all the folks who are thinking about going back to school, all the people who are kind of in mid-stride for getting an education. There was another part to the announcement today, and that is the Income Determined Repayment Plan has been reworked so that nobody who wants to get an education but can't afford to pay for it has to go through debt hell in the future. We've actually got a plan for people to be able to make it through school without getting crushed by student loan debt. I love it. <laughs> I, I know you have thoughts about this. So I, I want to I wanna ask you what your response is to folks who say, the heads of the NAACP, for example, that this is a meager plan. What what rejoinder can you offer to people say who say, listen, if you were going to go and do it, it's politically risky. Why didn't you just go all the way? So look, Derek Johnson, uh, who is the head of the NAACP, fights from the heart. And I give real props for that and real respect. The plan he was talking about was the initial $10,000 and nothing more for nobody. That's not what actually came through. In fact, the majority of people who will get student loan debt will get $20,000 of debt forgiveness. It will be a smaller portion that get $10,000. And of those who get $20,000 of debt forgiveness, these are people who were Pell Grant eligible when they were in college. And that means disproportionately, these are African-Americans. They are veterans. They are parents, mamas, who are trying to go back to work, and they are first-generation students. In other words, we've done what Democrats try to do, and that is pushed more of the resources to those for whom coming to college was a whole lot harder and those who have a whole lot harder time paying off that debt. So 
I think we're in a much better place right now with the plan that the president has actually announced. Now, look, I'm going to keep fighting for more because I think there's more good that we can do. But we need to take a deep breath and acknowledge just how historic this moment is and how the president of the United States has reached out to individuals, to to middle-class families, to working families, and said, I'm going to put government on your side. You bring up uh, communities of color, and I think we need to focus specifically on black women because they are the the sort of most vulnerable, as it were, in terms of the the hell of debt, as you call it. Black women, on average, um, they borrow more than any other racial group. They are they have to for forty one thousand four hundred and sixty six dollars. And then if you look at who voted for Joe Biden in the 2020 election, black women went for Joe Biden 90 percent to Donald Trump's 9 percent. And this is a key part of the president's base. They, in many ways, the black community, starting with the South Carolina primary, helped get him into the White House. When you were talking to the White House about the contours of this legislation, were they thinking about communities of color? And were they specifically talking about black women who, again, $41,000 a debt, we're talking about $20,000 in relief. That's half the burden, but it's certainly not all the burden. I certainly carried that message. And I also want to give a big shout out to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who's been one of our most uh, passionate partners in making sure that the president, the administration, that all of us stay centered on acknowledging who is carrying this debt burden and that we focus on how to bring that burden down. Look, like I said, I would like bigger numbers. I would like to be able to do more. I am very happy, though, that the president has come this far and it's going to make a huge difference in the lives of black women. It is going to make a huge difference in the lives of those who've had the hardest time getting to college and the hardest time paying off their debt after college. In fact, by the design of this plan, one of the groups we know is going to be most helped are those who were in default before we hit the pandemic and the pause under the pandemic. And I, I, I just have to say about this. We are moving things in the right direction, and it's taken a lot of passion. It's taken a lot of energy. Ayanna's been on the front lines. The NAACP has been on the front lines with Derek Johnson. We have so many partners who've helped make this happen. So many people who started their own independent, not-for-profit advocacy groups to make sure that the student loan debt burden is better understood across America and that we make real changes. And that is what today marks first step in real, in big structural change. I love it. (laughs) We were waiting for that. Uh, (laughs) The Republican Party is certainly not throwing a ticker tape parade over this. And in fact, Uh, they seem bullish on this, the utility of this as a political cudgel. Uh, I will quote Tom Cotton. There is no such thing as student loan forgiveness. This is a bailout paid for the large majority of Americans who never went to college or who responsibly paid off their debts. There is nothing the Republican Party loves more than a culture culture war. And they see this as ripe 
Um, this is, a, you know, we know that education is the dividing line in American politics. It's what really separates the Republican Party from the Democratic Party. And Republicans are going to make hay of this and say, this is another handout to the liberal elitist base, courtesy of Joe Biden. The Republican Party is a party of the grassroots working class. Um, setting aside the validity of that, what is the Democratic response to that? How are Democrats going to field this line of complaints? And it will be something you see a lot of between now and November? My answer is bring it on. Bring it on. $20,000 in student loan debt forgiveness goes to people who had Pell Grants. 95% of the people who have Pell Grants come from families with incomes of less than $60,000. The people who are being helped here 42% of them don't even have a college diploma. These are not people who went to Harvard the way that Tom Cotton did. <laughs> These are people who have been scratching it out at state schools, at historically black colleges and universities. They have had to borrow money to get there. They've had to borrow money to stay there. And they've had the hardest time paying off their debts on the other side. And here's the bottom line on this one. Debt cancellation is wildly popular across this country. Two out of three Americans basically say, yeah, we need to do it. The big argument among those who think there should be debt cancellation is whether you ought to cancel 100% of it or whether you ought to focus more of the energy on those who need the help the most. The Republicans have got nothing here. And what we have to remember as we have this fight is there's nobody left in America who doesn't know someone who is struggling with student loan debt. It, it's, it's everywhere around us. It's our neighbors. It's our friends. It's our families. It's our coworkers. It's our fellow students. It's the people we live with and work with. And what's happening to those folks right now? They can't move out of mom's basement. They can't save up money. To, to buy a home. They can't start a small business. Heck, a lot of them can't even start a family. All because of the sin that they wanted to try to get an education and they weren't born into a family that could write a check to make that happen. Today, the president took a powerful step towards saying, we're just going to level the playing field at mm -hmm. least a little. We're going to say to folks, get out there and give it a try. And if you do, we're going to invest in you. We're going to help a little with that student loan debt. That's the way we build a stronger country. And understand this, when people can start those small businesses, when they can save up and try to buy a home, they not only help themselves, they help build the economy for all of us. Economists will tell you, following World War II, when the returning GIs yeah. got the GI Bill benefits, that it not only helped them, that it returned to the American economy money many fold over what we invested. Why? Because it helped make us a richer nation overall. That's the first step that the president and the Democrats have taken today. And the Republicans, what if they got to answer that with nothing? They Goose got egg. nothing. They <laughs> are the party of no. They got no ideas. 
They got nothing. So they're going to try a little, their version of class warfare. Well, let the Harvard boys try it. It's not going to work. Burn. I do wonder, is this the thing? I mean, how are you feeling about the chances of the Democrats holding on to the Senate? Is this the thing? I'm liking it. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. And I'll tell you why I'm liking it. I'm liking it because Democrats have not only talked about what we want to do and who we want to fight for. We've actually gotten out and done it with the skinniest possible majority. It's not <laughs> yes. possible to have a skinnier majority than we had. It doesn't get skinnier than that. We have delivered. We're going to have a 40% reduction in carbon emissions paid for, paid for by a 15% minimum tax on these billion-dollar-plus profitable corporations that right now are paying little or nothing in taxes. Think about that. We're actually putting a cap on insulin for Medicare patients, and Republicans come in and strip it out for everybody else. We're going to talk about about hearing aids that people are going to be able to buy (laughs) hearing aids over the counter. Prices are going to come down, and we're going to talk about the 43 million Americans who got helped on student loan debt. We are doing it, and we're doing it with the skinniest majority. And you give us two more senators, two Democratic senators (laughs) who are willing to get rid of the filibuster, and yes, Mandela Barnes, I'm looking at you in Wisconsin. John Fetterman, I'm looking at you in Pennsylvania. And I got to say, Tim Ryan in Ohio, I'm kind of glancing your way from time to time. You're looking good out there. (laughs) We get these folks into the United States Senate. We get rid of the filibuster, and then we do the real things we need to do. We make Roe versus Wade the law of the land. We protect voting. Every American citizen has a right to vote and to get that vote counted. We can do uh, universal child care. Yes. We can do real gun safety. We can do the things we need to do as a nation so that this government works, not just for a handful at the top, but so that it works for everyone. That's why we're here. I think under the dictionary definition of happy warrior, there is a picture of Senator Elizabeth Warren, the Democrat <laughs> from Massachusetts, the lady with the plan. Congratulations again. Thank you for your time tonight, Senator. Thank you. Today's policy on student debt relief may not be the only thing that could help Democrats in November. Last night's special election in New York proved that Democrats can put abortion rights on the front burner and win. Congressman-elect Pat Ryan won doing just that. He joins us live right here in the studio coming up next. And the DOJ has just hours to tell a judge which part of the affidavit used to get a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, which part of it cannot be released. Details ahead. When our country called, he served. Pat Ryan graduated from West Point and risked his life in combat. He fought for our families, for our freedom. And freedom includes a woman's right to choose. How can we be a free country if the government tries to control women's bodies? That's not the country I fought to defend. I'm Pat Ryan, and I approve this message because in Congress, I'll fight to protect all of our freedoms. 
That was the very first ad released by Democratic candidate Pat Ryan in his bid to win a special election for Congress in upstate New York in the 19th district. Following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, Pat Ryan went out of his way to center his campaign around the issue of reproductive freedom. He made lawn signs with the words choice is on the ballot in big, bold text and vote Pat Ryan for Congress in notably smaller text. By, con- by contrast, Ryan's Republican opponent tried desperately to avoid the issue, focusing instead on crime and inflation, issues that Republicans had hoped could propel them to victory in the fall. This race was one of the first major tests to see how the court's decision on Roe will affect the outcome of this year's midterm elections. A near-perfect control trial in a district that flipped from Obama to Trump in 2016 and from Trump to Biden in 2020. And the result was clear. Last night, Democrat Pat Ryan won that special election by just two points. His reproductive justice-focused campaign managed to overcome Republicans' midterm election advantage, and it will now send him to the United States Congress. So what can Democrats learn from a candidate like Pat Ryan as they hope to hold onto their majority in November? Let us ask Pat Ryan himself. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman-elect Pat Ryan, fresh off his victory in New York's 19th Congressional District. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Fresh. I mean, I haven't really slept, so fresh might not be the right. Understandable. The the hopes of an entire party rest on your shoulders. Heavy stuff. Um, So proud. So proud. That ad is really um, indicative of how early you saw this becoming the issue. Um, You've been campaigning longer than the Dobbs decision has been handed down. Um, What was it like on the campaign trail after the Supreme Court made that call? Could you feel a difference in the crowds? Tell me. Well, so the campaign started right about when the, the draft opinion was leaked. And even those, those days after, there were marches and protests and rallies, and we were marching. And I remember this one woman, we were marching with a few hundred people into uptown Kingston in the district. There was a woman in her mid-late 60s just bawling, bawling, crying. And we stopped, and, and, and she, just, she was in just total disbelief and said, I cannot believe we are doing this again. And it was just so clear that that decision to rip away a fundamental right and freedom had just struck such a, such a nerve that I think even transcends the very partisan yeah. dynamics in our country right now. I think for a lot of people, when you say the 19th is a swing district, people don't really understand how much it is a bellwether. I went there in previous years during the first President Trump impeachment to go to town halls to see how voters were talking or not talking about that. I mean, people look at the 19th as the Petri dish. When you were hearing these stories and this indignation and this grief about Roe, was it coming from older women, younger women, independents? I mean, did you have a sense that this cut? I mean, you said it cut across party lines, but I'd love to know a little bit more about who specifically was most vocal about this. So this is what's been really powerful. This is such a wide and broad coalition, and we've really deliberately talked about freedom and the idea that this is such a unifying American value going back to our original DNA as a country that when rights and and freedoms are trampled on, all Americans stand up. And, And we felt that. I felt that on the ground. I mean, in a, in a way that you know, I kept trying to explain this to people as the campaign was building momentum. And I think people were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then we just, volunteers were pouring in and grassroots donations were pouring in and yard signs were popping up. And uh, it, it got bigger than certainly me and it got bigger than the district. And it became 
this powerful like movement. Yeah. And that's when you know. I mean, that's when you know that something visceral has been tapped and unleashed. And now I think that momentum uh, from Kansas to now this and mm-hmm. it is palpable and it is it is actually positive. Like people have something to not only hope for, but to like fight for. And yeah. people are ready to fight. And certainly uh, I think that was how we really marshaled the energy. What about this narrative? Uh, well, the Republicans say that this is an, well, they wanted this to be an election about crime. They wanted to talk about economic issues. Where did that fa- factor into your strategy? I mean, and is that something that Democrats need to still work on and figure out where should their messaging be on that? And also Donald Trump. So we talked a lot about both economic relief, uh, providing desperately needed economic relief. Uh, our, our other ad that's gotten a little less uh, sort of national attention, but really resonated at home, was about how our big uh, corporate uh, utility, power utility, was ripping off customers. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of people on the ground uh, say that hit home for me. That I'm struggling to pay my utility bills, and this this. Uh, companies making record-breaking profits and paying no taxes. So we were doing both. We're providing relief, talking about what we're going to do to deliver uh, on that relief and stand up for people's freedoms on a foundational level. And that one-two combo, I think that is... That is what we need to do, continue to do and build on. When we talk about democratic freedoms, I mean, you look at the polling and I think voters are legitimately concerned about freedoms. Some people sort of read into that democratic norms, elections, the existential threat posed by Donald Trump. Is he someone you talked about on the campaign trail? There are so many investigations right now. I think it makes people's heads spin. Right. (laughs) Um, And it's, I think, worth covering because this is a former president of the United States. Of course. As a politician in a swing district who's trying to win a seat, hold on to a seat, how much is the are the words Donald Trump uttered? I mean, we are not afraid to call out Donald Trump as someone who I believe is essentially traitorous at this point. I mean, I had a top secret clearance. I was an army officer. If I had done what he did, I would have been in jail 100 percent. No, no questions asked. Uh, and um, that has certainly been part of it. But I think it, it's just gotten bigger than that. I mean, the polling that we just saw a few days ago that threats to democracy are now top of mind above all these other issues exactly. for people. It's this cumulative effect of, OK, in 48 hours, you put more assault weapons on the street. You ripped away reproductive freedom and access to abortion. Then you, you dismantle the EPA. We're hearing more about January 6th. We see what's continuing to happen with the president. It's just guardrails of democracy increasingly being hit. And that is a wake up call for folks. What about um, we have to talk about it, student loan cancellation, right? There's there 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 are critics on both sides. Is that something you're going to be talking about as you run for? I'm not even going to get into the ins and outs (laughs) of all the elections you have to run for, but you are going to be on the campaign trail this fall. Are you going to be talking about student loans? How do you think that that's going to play? Absolutely. We have to talk about all the things we're doing at every level of government to deliver relief to people. As a county executive, I cut our gas tax in half to provide relief at the pumps, one of the most popular and effective ways we provided relief. We cut our property tax. At the federal level, the Inflation Reduction Act to bring down prescription drug prices uh, uh, and, and, and now to see the, Student the fact that 40 plus million people today felt a weight lifted off of their shoulder, that is 
powerful, powerful stuff. We have to lean into that. That is providing exactly what people are asking for right now. And uh, I'm a big believer in it's about delivering. And, and we are delivering at, at all levels right now. I got to say, you say you only got three hours of sleep. Your <laughs> eyes, my friend, are bright. Democratic Congressman-elect Pat Ryan. Congrats. Thank you. Go forth and prosper. We hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for having Thanks me. for joining me on set. New York and Kansas are not the only place where overturning Roe has turned out voters. New data shows it is happening in several states. That's ahead. And up next, former President Trump, we're mentioning his name, is pushing for the Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit to be released. We will get some expert help to help us understand why that might not be the brightest or best idea for the former president. if there is a Guinness world record for how many times you can shoot yourself in the foot in a three-week span. But President Trump and his legal team certainly appear to be trying for it. Right after the FBI searched President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, the former president and his supporters clamored for the Justice Department to release the search warrant that the FBI used to conduct that raid. They were sure that releasing that warrant would exonerate the former president. Days later, Attorney General Merrick Garland gave them exactly what they asked for. He released the search warrant. Far from exonerating Trump, that warrant was how we learned that the FBI investigation concerns potential violations of the Espionage Act. Then on Monday, one of President Trump's representatives in his dealings with the National Archives published a letter from the National Archives about the documents Trump had, t Trump had taken with him to Mar-a-Lago. Surely, this representative seems to have thought, if that became public, it would clear Trump's name. But that letter confirmed that among the 15 boxes Trump returned to the National Archives back in January, there were 700 pages of classified material. That is 700 pages of classified material returned before whatever the FBI collected this June and in their search earlier this month. And now the Trump demand, the thing that will supposedly clear his name for real this time. Now the demand is for the Department of Justice to release the affidavit for the Mar-a-Lago search. That affidavit, of course, would explain why prosecutors think Trump may have committed crimes here. So I'm not sure that this is going to exactly work out the way Team Trump is hoping it will. The Justice Department has until tomorrow at noon to file their proposed redactions of that affidavit. So what should we expect? Joining us now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, current professor at the University of Alabama Law School and co-host of the podcast Sisters in Law. Joyce, thank you for being with us tonight. What is your expectation about this affidavit and the redactions and its utility, generally speaking? So I suspect the answer is we won't know unless and until someone is indicted in this case, because DOJ will likely file under seal tomorrow. We won't know what redactions it's proposing. And Trump is very safe frankly, making the argument that the affidavit should be unsealed and that the government has something to hide, because something that his two lawyers, who are former DOJ employees, know is that this affidavit will need to remain sealed for a number of reasons. Perhaps there are some small parts of it that the magistrate judge might decide to release, but most of it will remain redacted. A lot of the information contained in it will be classified. Some of it will be grand jury material that can't be released. 
so safe for the, the Trump uh, camp here to say that they want something that they know will not be forthcoming, because as you point out, Alex, there's nothing good in this search warrant affidavit for Trump. This is the government's case against him. This is the government's probable cause to search Mar-a-Lago. The more we learn about all of this, not through affidavits, but through reporting, the worse it seems to look for President Trump. The Washington Post had reporting last night that Trump himself was involved in selecting the documents that were initially returned to the National Archives and that he oversaw the process himself and did so with great secrecy. Put an underline under great secrecy. How did you read that reporting and what kind of potential exposure does that give him? Well, very often we find that the decision point on cases like this has to do with a potential defendant's mens rea, their state of mind. Did they actually know and intend the consequences of their action? So this reporting that the former president was the one who determined what went to NARA and what stayed at Mar-a-Lago or stayed with him is an absolutely critical piece of evidence for DOJ. But it's important to say, I think, that we don't know whether there will be indictments or not in this case Typically, though, the sorts of cases where indictments are brought in this sort of a situation have what I would call a plus factor. It's not just the retention of the classified material. It's something that goes beyond that. And the facts that we're learning through reporting here are stunning. There are a lot of documents. We are learning that these are highly classified materials that could have a grave impact on national security if they're released. And we've also learned, and I think this may weigh the most heavily with folks at Maine Justice, that there were repeated efforts to get these classified materials back from a former president of the United States who took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and he couldn't even return classified material to the archives. I am just struck also by the fact that even Trump-appointed judges who are involved in all of this seem to be scolding Trump's legal representatives in terms of how they're filing for some of these motions and their general sort of handling of this case. This is not a president who has the executive branch behind him. He does not have White House counsel anymore. Do you think he has the tools in his arsenal to mount a defense given the mounting evidence that we're seeing at least in the press? You know, the best part of a good defense is preventing your client from ever being charged. So what you want if you learn that you're the subject or a target of a federal investigation is to have lawyers who can engage up front with federal prosecutors and convince uh, them for whatever reason that you should not be indicted. Trump now has two folks with some DOJ experience in their background. Presumably, they're doing that sort of thing. They had some difficulty getting their uh, case filed down in Florida um, in the 11th Circuit, which is Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. We take <laughs> our local rules seriously in our district courts as we do in our appellate court. And they had some stumbles there. But, but more than these technical stumbles, Alex, the real problem is it doesn't appear that they've filed the sort of a lawsuit with actionable claims that could protect the, the former president. So this civil action seems to be a real stumbling block for them. Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Thank you, as always, Joyce, for joining us tonight. Up Thanks, next. Alex. Up next on a day when we learn just how powerful outrage over the Supreme Court overturning Roe is at the ballot box, we are going to be joined by the head of the group that has led the political fight to keep abortion legal for decades. 
Minnie Timuraju joins us next. Stay with us. As we mentioned earlier in the show, a woman's right to choose was a decisive factor in the congressional race for New York's 19th district. But it also appears to be motivating voters in states across the country where abortion access is at risk. An analysis by the political data firm Target Smart shows a massive increase in women registering to vote following the Supreme Court ruling on Dobbs. In Kansas, for example, women made up 70 percent of newly registered voters, 70 percent following the Dobbs ruling. In Wisconsin, women have outregistered men by more than 15 percent. In Michigan and Pennsylvania, there are similar gender gaps with women signing up to vote at a higher rate than their male counterparts. And it makes sense especially given the disturbing headlines we continue to see day after day in the months after Roe versus Wade was overturned. Headlines like this one, Louisiana hospital denies abortion for fetus without a skull. Or this one, Florida teen may be forced to give birth after court rules she is not mature enough for abortion. Or this, doctors refuse potentially life-saving abortion treatment over legal fears, Indiana doctor says. Those are headlines that we will very likely see more of, given that a new wave of trigger bans restricting access to abortion are slated to go into effect tomorrow in Texas, Tennessee and Idaho, though we have just learned that the Idaho ban will include a small court ordered carve out for women's health emergencies. Joining us now is Minnie Timuraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. Minnie, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I just want to talk about those headlines for a second, because I remember after Dobbs was handed down, there was a story of a 10-year-old in Ohio who had been raped, who had whose mother had to take her across state lines to Indiana to get an abortion. And reproductive rights advocates said, these are the kinds of horror stories we are going to hear again and again and again. And, and as if on clock, like clockwork, we are hearing those horror stories. And yet it hasn't dimmed the rights push to restrict reproductive freedoms at all. Are you surprised at any of this? Um, I hate to be cynical, but I'm not. And here's why. Reproductive rights advocates, particularly women of color leaders of reproductive justice organizations, have been shouting for decades about the impact on communities like this and these exact stories uh, for so long because of the drip, drip, drip restrictions, targeted restrictions against abortion providers that made Roe uh, ineffective and unavailable, the promise of Roe, to vast parts of this country, rural parts of America, uh, women of color who couldn't access abortion because of you know restrictions on federal funding. We were already in a very dire state for abortion access in this country before Dobbs fell. But of course, I don't want to make it the mistake of saying it is not incredible increasingly more horrific. But to answer your question, these legislators, these Republican extremists, they knew these stories because we've been telling these stories for decades. And so, frankly, they are not surprised, but they are pushing through because this is all about power and control and they are seizing the moment, even though people in their own party, like as we saw in Kansas, are horrified and don't agree with them. So I think it's an overall trend of the drifting extremism of the extreme right, and it's indicative of a lot of challenges in this country. What are these trigger bans that are slated to go in effect? What do they practically mean for women in those states and in the surrounding areas? So it's interesting. Um, the breaking news on Idaho, you know, so there, so it's good news. It's a great step. The Department of Justice intervened, um, and a federal court did say that Idaho's ban could move forward, but with health of the mother restrictions, with, with the health of the mother exceptions. So that's a step. 
But the challenge pragmatically, if you put yourself in the shoes of a person in Idaho who needs access to an abortion, is unless they can prove uh, that they fall in that restriction and they can get a committee of doctors at a hospital and you're seeing all these stories, you know, to decide to deem that case an exception, uh, a ban is still a ban yeah. without exceptions, right? And in Texas and in Tennessee, we already had six-week bans. So the difference is that, that was an important window. But it was, frankly, already before most people know they're pregnant. Yes. And I remember going to Texas and talking to abortion doctors or abortion providers about that six-week ban. And they said they said it's effectively outlawing abortion. Absolutely. I, I do. You know, so there is a full ban on abortion in at least 10 states. South Dakota, Wisconsin. I think we have a map of this. Missouri, Kentucky, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Um does this mean that women are crossing? I mean, look at look at that area of that map. I mean, how do you how do you get you can't go to a neighboring state anymore? What I mean, happens? That's and why Kansas was so important. If you look at that map. Right. And, and you look at the you look at the fights, some of the electoral and political fights we're having right now on that map. And there's 14 states total with bans of some sort. Ten, as you said, with total bans. I, look, if again, if you are a person in a state with a ban, even if it's not a total ban, you have to find a doctor or you find a you either have to have a forced pregnancy first, or you have to find the resources. And thanks to the good work of our friends in the abortion fund community and in the provider community, there's a lot of groups working overtime to get pregnant people from point A to point B. But think about the hurdles you have to go through. You're a mom. I'm a mom. Who's going to take care of your kids? Right. How do you take time off? Okay. So suppose you're lucky enough to find a provider in another state. How do you get enough funds to compensate for your time? And then in the process that you're going through this bureaucracy, what if you're running up on other restrictions? What if you're running up on other deadlines where you, even if you're going to a state that doesn't have the same restrictions, they have other bans by weeks. So it's, unless you're going to California or New York, and how hard is it looking at that map to get someone there? Uh, we're talking about a draconian nightmare yeah. in this country for pregnant people, for women. We need a kind of underground railroad for women seeking reproductive freedom. I mean, it, this is America we are talking about. And we didn't even talk about the abolitionist movement that's looking to criminalize women who actually seek abortions. This conversation continues. Minnie Timuraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. Thank thanks for, for joining me. me here tonight. We will be right back. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.